All right, so I need to give you a little bit of a, I'll get this, Kyle, you don't have to, I appreciate that. I haven't been impressed the way you've done it the last couple of weeks, so I'll do it myself. Um, so where was I? Uh, I need to give you a little bit of a, a warning on this message, and that is, I'm going to try to speed up a little bit, because I went through my typical editing process, and there's just too much good stuff in chapter 4 of Ruth for me to eliminate it, and so, in order to keep the the natives at rest and you don't all flip out on me. I'm going to try to speed up a little bit, which I know you appreciate. So get ready because we got a lot to cover uh, this morning. I, there are two quotes that I came across this week that I think you can identify with. And especially after this book, I think you can identify with them even more. That it's essentially the message of this book. Okay, this is quote number one. This, and see if this makes any sense to you. The life of the godly is not an interstate through Nebraska. You ever driven an interstate through Nebraska? Anybody driven out west through Nebraska? If you've driven through Nebraska, it's just a straight road. There's nothing happening, and you wonder why anyone chooses to live here. Okay, because it's just open, barren land, and you're just driving. The life of the godly is not like that. Instead, it's a state road through the Blue Ridge Mountains of Tennessee. Has anybody ever taken the Blue Ridge Mountains, the state roads through Tennessee? Oh, we have some Tennessee fans here, the volunteers. Who they beat? Austin P. Anyway, um, that was college football reference. You'll take it? Yeah, after the last few seasons, I would assume. All right, anyway, uh, so this is the life of the godly. It's the state road through the Blue Ridge Mountains. There's rock slides and precipices and dark mists and bears and slippery curves and hairpin turns that make you go backwards in order to go forwards. If you've ever driven these roads, you know what we're talking about. Even if you haven't and you drive to, let's say you're going to Florida through Cincinnati. You do that thing at the bottom of Indiana where, oh, we're out of the state, we're in Ohio. And then, hey, we're back in Indiana. How did that happen? And it's really frustrating. You have to go backwards in order to go forwards. As I'm reading the book of Ruth and I'm seeing a lot of this, it's true. The life of the godly, there are these times that we have where it feels like we're going backwards. We certainly, and maybe this one is even better. Another writer put it this way, that God's paths are straight. That he will make our paths straight. That's true. But those straight paths are not without potholes. That you're driving and you're going in a straight line, but there are plenty of potholes. I know I've told you about my experience uh, with, with the potholes before my dad. He took us to a Cincinnati Reds game and he got lost after the game in the dark. And we're driving through some bad parts of Cincinnati and mom's fumbling for the locks on the doors. And dad's trying to speed out of there. And he hits a pothole. I went back and took a picture of it. That's the pothole that dad hit. <laughs> In fact, we were in the old Aerostar van. Did anybody have an Aerostar van back in the... Oh, those were... That was a high-quality machine is what that was. And even though it was years ago, we had cameras in there, like in, inside the vehicle cameras. So we have footage of me in the back seat when Dad hit this uh, pothole. Can we roll that, please? Uh, this is what happened to me. There I am. I'm playing along in the back seat. There I go. Right out the back window. We'll take this in slow motion. I'm having fun playing with some handcuffs is what I'm doing. And then there we go, and there go my feet, right out the back window of the door. So you've experienced potholes, the life of the godly. You're going down straight paths. God is taking you in the direction, but it's not without these times of torment and difficulty and all of this. As we get to the final chapter in the book of Ruth, and I don't know if you've been following along in the little booklet and taking notes, there is no doubt that Ruth and Naomi could testify to that. 
It feels like we're going backwards in order to go forwards. All of this bad stuff that happened, and now we see how God was preparing a way through all of it. And I'm telling you, even though we're in the final chapter, the drama isn't over yet. Because if you remember last week, we left off, we're on the threshing room floor. Ruth has made her appeal, make me yours, Boaz. And Boaz said, I would love to do that. But he also said, we're going to do this the right way. There's a right way to go about this. If you remember, yes, he is a kinsman, but he's not the closest kinsman. He's not Naomi's closest relative. Therefore, there's somebody else that legally, under the law of God, has access and right to Naomi and her property before Boaz. And Boaz says, we could maybe skirt the law and get around this and I could marry, but we're going to do this God's way. In other words, this whole thing, even though we feel like it's coming to this, this wonderful conclusion, it's not a done deal. I told you this was the Bible's Hallmark movie. And you know that, you see that. Just when you get to the end and you're looking at it, it seems like it's wrapping up and Jenny's asleep next to you and you're watching this thing and it's 30 minutes to go. And you know something's going to happen because they got to fill another 30 minutes of this. So that's where we are. In this story, the drama has not yet ended. I want you to think about the roller coaster that we've been on. Okay, the roller coaster. In chapter one, you had the crisis and the disaster. We got husbands dying all over the place. We've got barren women, sons who die, and, and you've got no hope. My family name is not going to be carried on. The Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. That's where we started in chapter one. Then we get to chapter two, and there's this renewed hope. Wait a minute, Boaz is my relation, and Ruth is in the same field as Boaz. I, God has never stopped being kind to the living or the dead. Renewed hope that Naomi has. And then chapter 3, we got the risky move. We're going to send Ruth down there to put it all out there in front of Boaz, making sure he knows that she wants to be with him. Will he see her as a seductress? Will he not be interested? How is all this going to play out? And even when you think that Ruth and Boaz are in the clear, his stinking principles get in the way. Him and his darn morals stand in the way of us getting a natural good conclusion. I want you to watch these play out. If you got your Bible, you're in Ruth chapter 4, and we'll pick it up with verses 1 through 4. All right, get there. If you got your little uh, thing. It, okay, here we go. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate, and he sat there. When the kinsman redeemer, that's the guy that's closest to Naomi and has right. When the kinsman redeemer that he had mentioned came along, Boaz said to him, Come here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Boaz took ten of the elders of the town and said, Sit here, and they did so. Then he said to this guy, the kinsman redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our brother Elimelech. Remember, Elimelech was her husband, and that's now uh, the land that she's going to sell. Boaz says, verse 4, I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it, and I'm going to do it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me so I will know, for no one has the right to do it except you, and I am next in line. And then he says it, the kinsman redeemer. I'll redeem it, he said. Already, okay, I'm telling you right now, when you're reading this story, if you're into it, you want to shout like the Luke Skywalker as he's clinging to the, no, that's what you want to do. This isn't the way the story's supposed to end. It's, we don't even know who this Jasper is that suddenly shows up and now he's going to redeem all this and take it. That's not how the story's supposed to play out. But I want you to pay attention to Boaz's integrity. He wants Ruth. He wants all of this to play out that way. But notice what he's doing in this situation. He's not angling to get his way. 
He's making sure he's bringing all of the elders here. We're doing this the right way. I am telling you all of the information. This is technically your right. Do you want it? I don't want to end up with Ruth and anybody to question the ways in which I went about it. That is integrity. It's exactly what we've known about Boaz through the whole story. He's getting witnesses and he's telling the truth. And that's what he does. And the kinsman redeemer says, I'll do it. And I'm telling you, I think his heart sank. I don't know that, but the way I'm reading the story and the way I'm understanding Boaz, I think he has that feeling. He's like, okay, please don't say it. Please don't say it. Yeah, I'll, I'll take it. I'll redeem it. I think his heart dropped. I told you, uh, I think it was last week, um, when Jenny and I were dating, that she was, we were dating and I felt like we were just, we were an item, but there wasn't any reason to rush things along. And so I didn't need titles. I didn't need to say we're going steady or anything like that. That wasn't, I wasn't, it wasn't necessary. But Jenny was looking for more of uh, some direction as to where all this was going. And so she had a friend who was trying to introduce her to this dude in Kentucky. All right, and this dude in Kentucky is a good-looking guy, and he had a lot of land, and he had a lot of money, whatever. Anyway, so Jenny, we're on the phone one night, and she says to me, I have to tell you right where I was, 121 North Mill Street, apartment number eight, the Ocho. Anyway, I'm in that apartment, and she calls me and says, hey, um, I think I'm going to go down this weekend and meet that guy. And now I have to play it cool because I'm the one that wasn't wanting to push things along too fast. And I'm like, oh, okay, yeah. I mean, I was going to ask you if you wanted to, but that's fine. We, we can do it. And the whole time my heart is cratered in the bottom of my stomach. I don't wonder, why are you wanting to go see Kentucky guy? Oh, he's got money? I'm a teacher, all right? I mean, why, why doesn't that sell you? But anyway, I think that's exactly the feeling that Boaz has in this moment. Just so you know, she never went to see Kentucky guy because I'm obviously. But anyway, so... Right, that's how it played out. I think I ended up crying. Please don't go. Anyway, okay. <laughs> What's really frustrating here when you read this story is Boaz is doing the right thing. He's doing the right thing, and yet you can almost feel that his heart is breaking. It's one thing when our sin causes us setbacks. We kind of deserve that, and we can understand why that happens. But when righteousness causes us setbacks... Man, it's really hard to remain righteous. I mean, make this as simple as you want. You're a kid, you take a test, you, missed, you get the paperback, you missed five, it's an A. But then you notice the teacher can't count. And so you bring it up and say, I actually missed eight. You didn't count the three on the back of this page. And the teacher says, oh, thank you very much. And he makes the correction in the grade book, and now your A becomes a B. And you're walking back to your seat saying, well, what was that all about? That's not the way that's supposed to work. He's supposed to say, well, thank you for your honesty. I will now give you three extra credit points for you being so honest. Righteousness is supposed to pay off. It's not supposed to hurt us. And here, that's exactly what's happening. But ever-honest Boaz isn't quite done. He has one more truth about this situation to tell, thankfully. And that one truth is... He's going to change everything. Look at verses 5 and 6. So the guy says, I'll redeem it. Then Boaz said, okay, on the day you buy the land from Naomi and from Ruth the Moabites, you acquire the dead man's widow in order to maintain the name of the dead and his property. This is a package deal. You will also get this Moabitess. I want you to remember that when he says Ruth the Moabitess. I think that's a major factor. I can't prove it, but I think it's a major factor here. You are going to get that land of Naomi, and you'll get the old woman, but you also get Ruth the Moabitess as part of this package. And verse 6, at this, the kinsman redeemer said, then I cannot redeem it, because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself, I cannot do it. 
I can't do it. So he's not, why does he change his mind? Well, the scripture doesn't say exactly other than my estate might be endangered. Well, what could that mean? First of all, he's likely married. Okay, if he has an estate and all of that, the man is likely married. And so he probably doesn't want, I mean, taking an old woman home is one thing. But, but you got Ruth? I mean, how do you have that conversation with your wife? Well, honey, I'm home and uh, well, look what we got. Um, that's a difficult conversation. Abby probably doesn't really want to have that conversation. Secondly, he already likely has kids that he has to provide an inheritance to. And that's what he's getting at when he says, I don't want to sacrifice my estate. Okay, because what that means is Naomi's not going to have any more kids. She's old. But Ruth, Ruth could quite possibly have children, probably will, which means now the estate that he's dividing up among his children, however many kids that Ruth has, now he's going to have to divide that up as well. And on top of it, I think, and again, I cannot prove this. This is my opinion reading the text. I think this is a major factor. She is foreign. This is a foreign wife. This is somebody that is not one of the chosen race. She is ethnically inferior to the Israelites in the eyes of the Israelites. The thought of getting Naomi's land was very appealing. He wanted the land. That sounded great. But Ruth is more than what he wanted. And I think her race had a major factor in that. And I think that that fits with the context of the scriptures. And so now the Hallmark movie is complete. You look at those verses 7 through 13, the, the love stories, uh, that's not the climax here, okay? I don't want you to pay attention if you want to because it's the, oh, we're so in love and now we're going to get married, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, you want to pay attention to that, that's fine. Although I will say that verse 7 is one of my favorite in Scripture. If you saw this, it undoubtedly stood out at you. In parentheses, now in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. What in the world is that? But what, you give your sandal to somebody else, and I look at that and I say, well, that's really dumb. I do think maybe in a couple thousand years, if the world is still here, they'll look back on how we handled legal transactions and maybe think the same thing. But there are people, if you don't know this, that still do this kind of stuff. Ben Reed, a chairman of the elders down here, Ben Reed has done a lot of work at our house, uh, electrical work. He's, he's uh, amongst other things, he's an electrician. And I'm telling you all this, so now you'll hit him up to do some electrical work. You're welcome. Anyway, um, so Ben's done a lot of work. And Ben, Mr. Religious, this is how he still does business. He still wants my shoes. The man has carried off more of my shoes than you would ever believe. Comes over and just carries the plate. That was you, Ben. Anyway, all right. After all the mushy stuff, focus back on the scriptures, okay? After all this, the book's going to come full circle. We started off with Naomi. You remember that? And everything that was going on with Naomi. And now we're going to go back to her, to her, to Naomi, with some of the most important verses, certainly of this book, maybe of the Old Testament. Look at verses 14 through 17, okay? Ruth 4, verses 14 through 17. The women, okay, so just so you know, Boaz and Ruth come together and they have a kid, all right? A kid named Obed. And the women said to Naomi, praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. Who do you think we're talking about right there? I'll read it again. The women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. I think when I'm just reading through this, like the first time, without actually digging into it, well, kinsman redeemer, obviously that's Boaz. That's who we're talking about. But remember, this is long after Boaz has come into Naomi's life. 
And he's already had a kid with Ruth. And it's after the kid is born that these women say all of this. And then look at verse 15. Uh, he, the kinsman redeemer, or this redeemer that you have, he will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons, has given him birth. Well, Ruth didn't birth Boaz. That's not exactly how this played out. So we're not talking about Boaz. We'll come back to that. Verse 16. Then Naomi took the child. So this is referencing the child. You can't get away from that reality in Scripture. Well, who they're talking about is the child Obed. Naomi takes the child, laid him in her lap, and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. To be clear, verse 17 where it says Naomi has a son, that is not meaning Naomi had the baby. So why are they saying this is the son of Naomi? Think back to where we started. What was Naomi's big hurt, her big struggle? She didn't have any sons or children by her offspring. Her family name was done. It was toast. Okay? And so what this verse is doing is it's to signify the complete reversal of Naomi's fortunes. She didn't have anybody to carry on the family name, and now the women are saying, you do. She had seen only the frowning providence of no family and no future, and now she is holding the child that is going to carry on her family name. And about that child, look back at verse 14 one more time. Verse 14, the women said to Naomi, praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. Let's drop the word kinsman because it's not a word that we use. Praise to the Lord who this day has not left you without a redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. The he is not referring to Boaz. Verse 15, you carry the pronoun forward into verse 15. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. Your daughter-in-law has given birth to him. Specifically, this redeemer is the one, Obed, who is going to extend the lineage to the Messiah. All right. This is where, do you remember when we started all of this and I said, if you will pay attention, you will see buried in the book of Ruth, shadows of the cross. You will see how the book of Ruth is all about the coming of Jesus. I'm telling you, that's the story of the whole Old Testament. It's all about Jesus. You want to understand your Messiah, look in the pages of the Old Testament. You have to look beyond the text and see into it with the work of the Holy Spirit. You will see Jesus all over. This book. It's what the book is about. This Hallmark movie is part one. It has a sequel. It's part of an entire series. Naomi and Ruth and Boaz, they are mere characters at one moment in time that are caught up in something of eternal significance. That's what's playing out here. If you don't believe me, go back to Ruth chapter one. I want you to look at the very first verse of this entire book, the first phrase, and then we'll look at the very last verse of this entire book. You'll see exactly what I'm talking about, I promise you. Verse 1, in the days when the judges ruled. Okay, stop right there. What do we know about the days that the judges ruled? This is an evil time in Israel's history. They have no king, they have no leader, no Moses, no Joshua. You got random times of oppression, the people are oppressed, nothing good is happening. They're just wondering when the next oppressor is going to come. In the days that the judges ruled. Now go to the end of chapter 4, verse 21. Salmon, the father of Boaz, Boaz, the father of Obed, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David. And we know that David, the house of David, is the, the lineage from whom the Messiah will come. What this book is telling you, if you step back and see the full story, it's saying that God was at work, even in an evil time, 
When nobody saw anything good coming out of this time, God behind the scenes is at work in an evil time to prepare the way for the house of David. He's working behind the scenes to make all of this play out. God's, listen, this is, gives me chills. God's work to provide a redeemer for Naomi and Ruth, which is what we've been reading about and what we've been seeing. It's not just that. His work to prepare and provide a redeemer for Naomi and Ruth was all couched in a much larger effort to do what? To provide a redeemer for all of us. That's what this book is about. This book is about the coming of the Messiah. The book of Ruth is pointing towards Jesus. So what are our takeaways? What are my takeaways from this? Okay, obviously, if you missed last week, I know why you missed it. Because you couldn't bear to come and hear me talk about sex. It's online. You can go see that. But I'm telling you, it may have been uncomfortable. But there is massive application for us when it comes to sexuality in the book of Ruth. There, there are moral lessons that we can take. And I do want you to pick up on some of the other things, the moral lessons that we can take from Ruth. I just don't want you to see the book of Ruth as this story that gives us certain moral lessons that we apply to our lives. Of course we can take that. But this story is about God's story of redeeming mankind. Don't miss that. It doesn't stop with just the sexuality lesson. Uh, there are all these scholars that have written so much on the book of Ruth. And I was reading a bunch of them and all of these different ideas of what's in there. I took like three of my favorites, condensed it down, because I think we can remember three, and I switched it around a little bit to give you an alliteration. People love alliterations. So that's the same letter, okay? Because we can remember P's. I think there's a lesson for us here in prejudice. I think there's a lesson here when it comes to God's providence and a lesson we need to take when it comes to perspective. Let's look at each of them. First of all, prejudice. Ruth was not an Israelite. We've stressed that. She was a Moabitess, okay? She is an ethnic outsider. She is looked down upon. Certainly by the people, you see that with the kinsman redeemer. He doesn't want Ruth. He doesn't want any involvement with Ruth. And with good reason. God's people were forbidden to marry foreign wives. If you go to Ezra, you see that in the law. Ezra 10, 11. Do not take foreign wives for yourself. And so it embedded in the hearts and the minds of these blind and, and hard-hearted people the idea that this was all about race and ethnicity. So why in the world, if God forbid marriage to foreign wives... Would God use a marriage, Boaz, to a foreign wife to bring about the lineage of his son? Well, what that should signify is God's teaching us something. He's doing something here that we're not fully understanding what's going on. God is always moving, and I think you see in these pages, God is moving in such a way to lay the dynamite that is going to explode any foundation for racism or prejudice or discrimination or ethnocentrism. He's blowing it to smithereens with this whole story of Ruth. We've said before that the Old Testament is a shadow of things to come. You know the phrase. You should memorize it. That the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. And the New Testament is the Old Testament, what? Revealed. You got it. Okay? So what is the shadow that you're seeing in these laws of Israel? Don't marry a foreign wife. What is the shadow here? It's not race. It's faith. It's where they have placed their faith. Why is the marriage to Ruth okay when God had forbidden marriage to foreign wives? Had nothing to do with skin color or race. Why was the marriage to Ruth okay for Boaz? Well, Boaz said it in, verse, in chapter 2. Where had Ruth chosen to seek refuge? Under the wings of the Almighty. She had chosen to call him Lord and follow him. And therefore, she isn't foreign. 
She's part of God's family. It's about faith. Remember last week I was reading to you, uh, we, we read real quickly from 1 Corinthians chapter 7 about how if you, if you can't control yourself, you should get married, those urges. Well, Paul isn't done talking with these instructions in chapter 7. I'll just read it to you real quickly. You don't have to flip. Verse 39 of chapter 7. A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives. Sorry, Jim. But if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes. Look at this. But he must belong to the Lord. That's it. That's God's instructions. It's God's expectations. Don't misunderstand this to be a racial thing. It has everything to do with don't be unequally yoked. Marry someone who is in the faith and, and has surrendered uh, to, to Christ. That's what you are to do. And how does God prove it doesn't have anything to do with race? The blood of a Moabite woman. The blood of a Moabite flowed in the veins of Jesus. It was there. And the blood of Jesus that was shed on Calvary, that flowed at Calvary, it was for the Moabites, it was for the Israelites, it was for the Americans, it was for the Australians, it was for the Africans, it was for anybody and everybody that has ever been born or ever would be born on earth. It has not, That's what Revelation tells us. What does it say? You were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and every language and every people and every nation. That has to be the testimony. That has to be where our heart is as Christians. And I wonder sometimes how much it is. I see a great deal of concern in our culture about the shifting ethnicities. We talk a lot about that. People that are obsessed with politics, there's so much discussion of this. Almost a fear. Oh, you realize whites aren't going to be the majority anymore in America. We're going to be, we'll still be the biggest group, but we're going to be under 50% really soon. We'll be the biggest minority that there is. And I listen to people say that, and I, so? Why does that even matter? Why, why are we talking about that? Don't cling to such a worldly thought. Scripture is telling us, the book of Ruth is all about the fact that skin color and all of that doesn't matter in the eyes of our citizenship is in heaven. Our citizenship is there regardless of what our ethnicity is, regardless of whether you are black or white or brown or anything in between. We as believers are all exiles. We are all foreigners. We are all strangers in a strange land. Our brotherhood is with one another in Christ. A follower of Jesus of any ethnic group is a closer relative to me than my blood brother who rejects Jesus. Let's say my brother, my actual brother Andrew, okay, earthly brother, he doesn't reject Jesus, but let's say that he did. What this is telling me is that my I am closer to someone from the villages of Africa who has surrendered to Christ. He is more my brother than Andrew, who shares similar blood and DNA, than Andrew would ever be to me. That is a wild idea, but it's true in the Christian faith. It's not true in the world, but it's true to us. Jesus said it himself. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. That's the way Christians will think. It's what Ruth is teaching us. Is this our perspective? It needs to be. All right. Then we got this lesson on providence. I told you about Joni Erickson Tata, and I was corrected afterwards. Sherry, who's Jenny's friend, I don't claim her uh, as a friend. She's just Jenny's friend. But she came and she said, you know it's pronounced Johnny Erickson Tata. I said, no, it's not Johnny, it's Joni. She said, no, I happen to blah, 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 blah. It's Johnny. Okay, so whatever. All right, let's see. Johnny, Joni, tomato, tomato, Sherry, annoying. It's all the same, okay? <laughs> just so we're all on the same page about this. But I'm going to keep saying Joni because it's how I've always said it. I told you about Joni Erickson Tata. As you can imagine, I, I know we look at her life now, oh, what a testimony and how many people she's led to Christ. 
Think about it. She was 17 years old when she jumped into that water and became paralyzed. I don't care how strong you are in your faith. At 17, you don't think there were questions. You don't think there were doubts. You don't think there were moments where, where she felt like just leap leaving the faith entirely how could God do this to me real doubt and real anger and then she met a guy named Steve Estes she was introduced to him he's a minister and he brought her to understand this we need to understand this point when we deal with the, the tragedies and the sorrows of life we need to understand this reality that our soul is infinitely more valuable than our physical body and what happens to us here and Joni needed to understand that lesson, and, and God used Steve to teach that to her. You remember what Jesus said? One of those really weird and uncomfortable teachings. If your eye causes you to sin, what should you do? Gouge it out. Throw it away. What? I'm not going to gouge my eye out, but why does he say that? It's better for you to go through life blind than to have your soul thrown into hell. Your soul is more valuable than your eye, than your physical existence. If your hand causes you to sin, lop that puppy off. Get rid of it because it's better for you to go through life maimed than to have your whole soul thrown into hell. What matters the most is your soul. That's what Jesus is teaching. It's exactly what Steve was trying to teach Joni Erickson Tata in this whole thing. Her understanding of a smiling face behind frowning providence. I want you to hear this. this. This is just, I can never get enough of her testimony. This is how she describes her life before the accident. I was heading down a path of self-destruction before my accident. I was checking out a birth control clinic to get some pills because I knew I'd be sleeping with my boyfriend in college once I was out from under mom and dad's uh, watchful eye. Somewhere in that mess of emotions and regrets and falterings and failings while making a sham of my Christian faith, somewhere in that desperation I said, God, rescue me, and he did. I believe my accident was a direct answer. You, you hear what she's saying? It took away my physical existence and my ability to do all of those things. But those things that I was going to do with my physical existence, they were leading me away from the Father. And I asked God to rescue me, and he said, okay. And he rescued me through that accident. Some people might want to say indirect, but I lean towards the old adage, get this, that God draws straight lines. Okay, remember, God will make our path straight. God draws straight lines with crooked sticks. He will take the crookedness of our life and make that straight path for us. Something that we see as disastrous, as awful. God is forming a straight line out of all of that. God ordaining something bad. Listen, when God ordains, and he ordains anything that happens, when God ordains something bad, that is not the same thing as God doing something bad. I'll say it again. When God ordains something difficult in our lives, he's presiding over it and it happens to us. That is not God doing something wrong himself. Joni asked Steve this question. Looked right at him and said, how can you say this accident was God's will? Imagine talking to a young woman who had so much in front of her, who is now a quadriplegic and can't move. And she said, you're telling me that God did this to me? How am I supposed to worship a God? Like, how do you answer that question? I mean, that's, that's a tough question to answer, to look back and say, yeah, God, God ordained this. Okay, or don't think about that situation. Remember the tsunami that I started off with, that God ordained the tsunami? How can you lay that at God's feet? We're remembering 9-11 this weekend and tomorrow's the anniversary. God ordained such a horrific event to happen. That's not saying God planned it, but it happened under God's sovereignty. He allowed it through his providence. He is working in it. How can you lay something like that at the feet of God? 
It's that whole, when Job says, you give and take away. And we're uncomfortable saying that God takes away. It doesn't seem right that we say that. Doesn't seem right. Steve Estes' answer to Joni, unbelievable. Listen to what he said. When she asked, do you think God, he, he ordained this accident to happen to me? Steve Estes said, let me answer your question by asking you a question. Do you believe that when Jesus died on the cross, that was God's will? Think about it for a minute. Because Jesus was handed over for 30 pieces of silver, drunken soldiers pulled his beard out, then beat him mercilessly in a back room. The mob that he was there to save screamed, crucify him. How can that be God's will? Torture, injustice, murder, treason? How could any of that be God's will? Do you think, Joni, that God ordained the death of his son on the cross? And Joni said, I sat there and realized he had me. He had me. I couldn't escape it. If the father's plan was for his son to go to the cross, what does that tell us? What does that tell us about the suffering that we deal with in our lives? It says that the pains of this life, which Jesus certainly dealt with himself, the pains of this life, those are not exceptions of God's love for us. You get that? It's not when you go through a tough time, this is an exception where God isn't loving us. No, God always loves us. These difficult moments are not exceptions to it. In fact, these difficult moments are expressions of God's love. We may not see it. We may not ever fully understand it. But we see and understand who he is. We understand what he has taught us and what we can know of him. Providence knows, Joni ended up saying, that there are more important things than walking. Man, to have that kind of faith, walking through a trial like that, I trust the merciful hand of providence and my father. He brings us then to perspective. The third P in all of this. One of the grave errors of our day is wasted time. I struggle with this. Wasted time. Doing things that ultimately don't have any purpose and don't ultimately matter. We have a magnificent charge as believers. We are to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to everyone around us, but we waste so much of our time on trivial things. You know the easiest example of this? Pick up a newspaper or go online. And you know what you're going to find? You're going to find all kinds of commentary about the news of the day. Oh, what President Biden's doing, or what China's doing, or how about this? Today's the kickoff of NFL Sundays. We're going to find website after website with statistics and all kinds of information, and I'm not going to tell you how many hours I'll spend looking at that stuff as though there's some great value in it. It's a game, for heaven's sake. It's a silly game. If you think about it, you throw an oblong object and somebody comes up and jumps on you. I mean, it's kind of a weird thing to think about. But we focus on it. We love it. We're obsessed with it. It's trivial is what it is. In comparison to how much of our time do we spend looking and marveling at what the church of Jesus Christ is doing throughout the world? How, how many newspapers carry stories about that? That's what I'm saying. We're focused on the trivial. Maybe the easier way to understand it. You remember when I had Ben take that uh, extension cord out the room? It was Francis Chan's rope. That rope, that long extension cord that goes on for eternity, that's your life. But you put a little piece of tape at one end of it, that's your life on earth. And our lives revolve so much around what's happening in that little piece of tape, and we're not paying any attention to all of that stuff out there. That's what I mean. That's what I'm getting at when I say we're obsessed with trivial matters. And here's what the book of Ruth teaches us. Whatever we do in obedience to God, no matter how small it may seem, is significant. 
I'll say it again. No matter what you do, and there are those of you that are here this morning, and I want to smack you because you, sorry, that's rude. But I, I want to because you have this perspective that, well, I mean, I'm not one of God's big movers and shakers. You know, he's got people in big positions. I've never been elected to anything. I just live in Greentown. I'm not doing anything big. And we take this as exactly what Satan wants of us, to think that our role isn't significant in God's eternal architecture. That's the biggest lie you could ever imagine, and it's totally opposite of everything we see happening in this book. If I want you to take anything from this book, it's that this book is about the coming of the Messiah. But if there's anything else you take from this book, it is the significance of every act of obedience we have to the Father. In Moab, little Ruth, she had no idea that the God of the universe was preparing her to play a part in the Genesis 3.15 prophecy. Remember Genesis 3.15 in the garden? Yeah, there is coming a Messiah, born of woman. And you, Satan, will strike his heel, but he's going to crush your head. And here you've got little Ruth, a Moabitess, who's despised by Israelites, God's people. You think she had any idea, as she's playing her Moabite games as a little girl, that the God of the universe is preparing the way for her to be part of that prophecy? There's no way she could have known that. And there's no way you can possibly know what God is preparing you to do in his eternal story. Here's what we learn from this amazing book. Whatever you do, whether that is serving your mother-in-law, Ruth's decision. What if she had decided not to serve her mother-in-law and go with Orpah? Think how different the whole story would have been. A small decision. Okay? Whatever we do to, to be obedient to God, picking up grain in a field... What if Ruth felt lazy that day and didn't go to the field where Boaz was? Every little decision that you make in obedience, falling in love, that decision, okay? And several of you have done that. You fall in love. That decision in obedience to God can have an eternal significance. Having children, I know that there are stay-at-home moms who are constantly fed this line from the culture that your life isn't as valuable because you aren't contributing to society. What utter nonsense. I mean, it's absolutely absurd to suggest that. God has placed children under your care. Children that, can, that he can use in such a way. Think, think about what Ruth's child is going to do. Uh, every act of obedience we have, has it, it's all connected to eternity. Every single one is connected to eternity. How does that not matter to us? Things are much bigger than they appear. And why? Because the book of Ruth tells us God is involved in them. Every little decision, God is involved, and he is working for our good. You think about this. I, I'll tell you my own. I, I don't know if any of you would say that God has used me in any way to impact your life. I don't know if you would say that. It's arrogant of me to think that. But let's suppose that it's true. Let's suppose maybe some student that I had at some point in time, there was an eternal difference that God used me to make in their life. I ran into Randy Colglazer yesterday at the doctor's office. Grayson was sick, so I took him to the doctor, and Randy was there with his wife. I don't know if you remember Randy Colglazer. He was an administrator at Eastern. He was the athletic director at Eastern, the football coach for a while. Randy and I stood there and talked. Most people don't realize that when I was a senior in college at Indiana Wesleyan, going to become a teacher, Eastern had just hired a new social studies teacher to, to fill the position that I now have. And he had a, a mental issue, and, and he left like three weeks into school. And the school was trying to find someone, to hire someone to fill that position. And they asked Randy, will you take this position? It's Randy's last year. He doesn't want to be back in the classroom. He hasn't been in the classroom in two decades. Randy said, my first answer was, no, I'm not going to do it. I don't want to do it. I'm going to stay where I am as assistant principal. I'm not going to do it. 
He went home and he thought about it, prayed about it, and ended up coming back saying, if you need me there, I'll do it. It made it a lot easier on the school than trying to replace him. Randy went into that position. Then something went haywire at Indiana Wesleyan and my placement at Oak Hill as a student teacher fell through. They called Eastern. They said, actually, we got a guy filling in there. It'd be great if you could send him over to be the student teacher. I came here. That position was open. Ron Mattis called me my second semester at IWU, and I'm playing Mario Kart. I almost didn't take the call, and I did, and he said, do you want this job? And I said, sure. And the rest is, had Randy Colglazer not made the decision to help out the community and fill that position, I would not have been at Eastern. I would not have married Jenny. I would not be here doing any of this. Many of you would have never met me. So if there's anybody here who says, yeah, you made an eternal difference in my life, all of that was tied to what? A simple act of obedience by Randy Stinkin' Colglazer, for heaven's sake. That's what I'm saying. You never know the kind of impact you're making in your acts of obedience. It, it, it trickles down. This little Moabite girl, what does God do? God works through this little Moabite girl to bring about an interracial baby, Obed. And that little interracial baby, God works through them to bring about a little shepherd boy in a field. And God takes that little shepherd boy and works in his life to bring about a mighty king over Israel. And that mighty king over Israel, God works through all of these circumstances to bring about a virgin girl, completely pure, a thousand or two years later. And that virgin girl, completely pure, God works through her to bring about a savior for all mankind. And that savior is telling us today that God is working right now in this very moment to bring about what? To bring about a place with no more death and no more mourning and no more crying and no more pain because the old order of things has passed away. It's gone. It's done. Behold, I am making all things new. And if that isn't working for our good, I don't know what is. Praise God for the story of this faithful woman, Ruth. Father God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for working among us. Even when we don't see your hand of providence, Father, the smallest decisions of obedience that we make, you are using, and we praise you for that. Forgive us of the times that we feel that we're so insignificant and unimportant.